Section number 44 of Canada, the Empire of the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Canada, the Empire of the North by Agnes C. Lott from 1820 to 1867 part 1 it will be recalled that on the coming of the united empire loyalists to canada the form of government was changed by the constitutional act of 1791 dividing the country into upper and lower canada the government of each province to consist of a governor the legislative council and the assembly Unfortunately, self-government for the colonies was not yet a recognized principle of English rule. While the assemblies of the two provinces were elected by the people, the power of the assemblies was practically a blank, for the governor and council were the real rulers, and they were appointed by the crown, which meant Downing Street, which meant in turn that the two Canadas were regarded as the happy hunting ground for incompetent office seekers of the great English parties. From the Governor General to the most insignificant postal clerk, all were appointed from Downing Street. Influence, not merit, counted, which perhaps explains why one can count on the fingers of one hand the number of governors and lieutenants from 1791 to 1841 who were worthy of their trust and did not disgrace their position by blunders that were simply notorious. Prevost's disgraceful retreat from Lake Champlain in the War of 1812 is a typical example of the mischief a political jobber can work when placed in a position of trust, but the life-and-death struggle of the war prevented the people turning their attention to questions of misgovernment and it is hardly an exaggeration to say that the act of 1791 reduced canadian affairs to the chaos of a second ireland and retarded the progress of the country for a century it has become customary for english writers to slur over the disorders of 1837 as the results of the ignorant rabble following the bad advice of the hotheads Mackenzie and Papineau, but it is worth remembering that everything the rabble fought for and hanged for has since been incorporated in Canada's constitution as the very wolf and warp of responsible government. Let us see how the system worked out in detail. After the War of 1812, Prevost dies before court-martial can pronounce on his misconduct at Plattsburgh, and Sir Gordon Drummond, the hero of Fort Erie siege, is sworn in. Canada is governed from Downing Street, and it is my Lord Bathurst's brilliant idea that forever after the war there shall be a belt of twenty miles left waste, forest, and prairie between Canada and the United States, presumably to prevent democracy rolling across the northern boundary. Fortunately, the rough horse sense of the frontiersman is wiser than the wisdom of the British statesman, 
and settlement continues along the boundary in spite of Bathurst's brilliant idea. Those who fought in the War of 1812 are to be rewarded by grants of land, rewarded, of course, by the Crown, which means the Governor, but the Governor must listen to the advice of his councillors, who are appointed for life, and to the heroes of 1812 the councillors grant fifty acres apiece, while to themselves the said councillors vote grants of land running from twenty thousand to eighty thousand acres apiece. After the war it is agreed that neither Canada nor the United States shall keep war vessels on the lakes, except such cruisers as shall be necessary to maintain order among the fisheries. But the credit for this wise arrangement does not belong to the councils at Toronto or Quebec, for the suggestions came from Washington. As the legislative councillors are appointed for life, they control enormous patronage, recommending all appointments to government positions and meeting any applicants for office who are outside the family ring, with the curt refusal that has become famous for its insolence, no one but a gentleman. Judges are appointed by favor, so are local magistrates, so are collectors at the different ports of entry. Smaller cities like Kingston are year after year refused incorporation because incorporation would confer self-government and that would oust members of the family compact who held positions in these places. Office holders are responsible to the crown only, not to the people. Therefore, when Receiver General Cadwell of Quebec does away with 96,000 pounds or two years' revenue of Lower Canada, he accounts for the defecation to his friends with the ex explanation of unlucky investments and goes scot-free. Quebec is a French province, but appointments are made in England, so that out of 71,000 pounds paid to its several servants, 58,000 pounds go to the English office holders, 13,000 pounds to French, out of 36,000 pounds paid to judges, only 8,000 pounds go to the French. And in Upper Canada, Ontario, it was even worse. In Quebec there was always the division of French against English, and Catholic against Protestant. But in Upper Canada, the family compact of councillors against commoners was a solid and unbroken ring. When the assembly raises objections to some items of expense set down by the council, writes Lieutenant Governor Simcoe in Hyde Dungeon, I will send the rascals, meaning the commoners, packing about their business, and he prorogues the house. Not all the governors and their lieutenants are foolishly blind to the faults of the system as Simcoe of Ontario. Sir John Sherbrooke of Quebec, who succeeds Drummond in Lower Canada, knows very well he is surrounded by a pack of thieves, but they are his counsellors, appointed for life, and there he is, bound to abide by their advice. Nevertheless, he kicks over traces vigorously now and then, like the old war-horse that he is. 
the commissary general comes to him with word that six hundred pounds is missing from the military chest and he needs a warrant for search search indeed roars sir john there's not the slightest need wherever there is a robbery in your department it is among yourselves go find it curious it is how good men reared in the old school where the masses exist for the benefit of the classes and the governed are to be allowed to exist only by favor of those who govern curious how men fail to read the sign of the times colonel tom talbot's settlement in west ontario has by eighteen thirty two increased to fifty thousand people and the mad harum-scarum of court days is becoming an old man talbot has been a legislative councillor for life but it is not on record that he ever attended the council in toronto still he views with high disfavor this universal discontent with being governed the secret meetings held to agitate for responsible government tom talbot regards as a pestilence leading on to the worst disease from which humanity can suffer namely democracy the old bear stirs uneasily in his lair as reports come in of louder and louder demands that the colony shall be permitted to govern itself what would become of kings and colonels and land grants by special favor if colonies governed themselves colonel tom talbot doffs his homespun and his coon cap and he dons the satin ruffles of twenty-five years ago and he mounts his steed and he rides pompously forth to the market-place of st thomas town on st george's day of eighteen thirty two bands play flags wave the country people from twenty miles round come riding to town banners inscribed with loyalty to the constitution are carried at the head of parades the venerable old colonel is greeted with burst after burst of shouting as he comes prancing on horseback up the hill the band plays the british grenadiers the highland bagpipes skirl a welcome then the old man mounts the rostrum and delivers a speech that ought to be famous as an exposition of good old tory doctrine some black sheep have slipped into my flock and very black they are and what is worse they have got the rot a distemper not known in this settlement till some i shall call for short rebels began their work of darkness under cover of organizing blanked cold water drinking societies where they meet at night to communicate their poisonous schemes and circulate the infection and delude the unwary then they assumed a more daring aspect under mask of a grievance petition which when it was placed before me i would not take the trouble to read being aware it was trash founded on falsehood fabricated to create discontent at the end of a half-hour's tirade of which these lines are a sample the good old tory raised his hands 
and in the words of the church's benediction blessed his people and prayed heaven to keep their minds untainted by sedition looking back less than a century it is almost impossible to believe that the colonel's speech it cannot be called reasoning was applauded to the echo and regarded as a masterly justification of people being governed rather than governing themselves perhaps after all it was not so much the constitution of canada that caused the conflict as the clash between the old-time feudalism and the spirit of modern aggressive democracy the united states fought this question out in seventeen seventy six canada wrestled it cannot be called a fight the same question out in eighteen thirty seven it is necessary to give one or two cases of individual persecution to understand how the disorders flamed to open rebellion one matthews an officer of the eighteen twelve war living on a pension had incurred the distrust of the governing ring by expressing sympathy with the agitators now to be an agitator was bad enough in the eyes of the family compact but for one of their own social circle to sympathize with the outsiders was snobbercacy clique of the little city of ten thousand at toronto almost an unpardonable sin such sins were punished by social ostracism by the grand dames of toronto not inviting the officer's wife to social functions by the families of the upper clique literally freezing the sinner's children out of the foremost circles of social life many a canadian family is proud to trace lineage back to some old lady of this temptuous period whose only claim to recognition is that she waged pretty persecution against the heroes of canadian progress now the annals of the times do not record that this special sinner's wife and children so suffered at all events matthew's spirits were not cast down by social sobbery he continued to sympathize with the agitators the family compact bided their time and their time came a few months later when a company of american actors came to toronto a band concert had been given when the british national air struck up all hats were off then someone called for yankee doodle and in compliment to the visitors when the american air struck up matthew shouted out for hats off for this sin the legislative council ordered the lieutenant governor to cut off matthew's pension and to the everlasting shame of sir peregrine maitland the advice was taken though matthews had twenty-seven years of service to his credit matthews appealed to england and his pension was restored so that in this case the family compact for political reasons was pretending to be more british than great britain it was not to be the last occasion on which the loyalty cry was to be used as political dodge the persecution of robert gourlay was yet more outrageous he had come to canada soon after the war of eighteen twelve and in the course of collecting statistics for a book on the colony 
was quick to realize how Canada's progress was being literally gagged by the policy of the ruling clique. Gourlay attacked the local magistrates in the press. He pointed out that the land grants were notorious. He had advocated bombarding the evils from two sides at once, by appealing to the home government and by holding local conventions of protest. The past to which things had come may be realized by the attitude of the council. It held that the colony must hold no communications with the imperial government except through the governor-general. In other words, individual appeals not passing through the hands of the legislative council were to be regarded as illegal. It is sad to have to acknowledge that such a palpably dishonest measure was ever countenanced by people in the right minds. But the family compact went a step farther. It passed an order forbidding meetings to discuss public grievances. This part of Canada's story reads more like Russia than America, and shows to what length men will go when special privileges rather than equal rights prevail in a country. Gourlay met these infamous measures by penning some witty doggerel headed gagged gagged by Jingo. The editor in whose paper Gourlay's writings had appeared was arrested, and the offending sheet was compelled to suspend. Gourlay himself is arrested for sedition and libel at least four times, but each time the jury acquits him. At any cost the governing clique must get rid of this scribbling fellow, whose pen voices the rising discontent. An alien act passed before the War of 1812, compelling the deportation of sedious persons, is revived. Under the terms of the act, Gourlay is arrested tried and sentenced to be exiled but gourlay declares he is not an alien he is a british subject and he refuses to leave the country he is thrown in jail at niagara and for a year and a half left in a mouldy close cell one dislikes to write that this outrage on british justice was perpetrated under chief justice powell whose failure to obtain decisions from the jury in the Red River trials brought down such harsh criticism on the bench. At the end of twenty months, Gourlay is again hauled before the jury and sentenced to deportation on pain of death if he refuses. He was calmly asked if he had anything to say, if there was any reason why sentence should not be pronounced. Anything to say? any reason why sentence should not be pronounced? From 1818 to 1820 Gourlay had been having things to say, had been giving good and sufficient reasons why sentence should not be pronounced. The question is repeated. Robert Gourlay, stand up. Have you anything to say? The court waits. Chief Justice Powell, bewigged and wearing his grandest manner, all unconscious that the scene is to go down to history with a blot of ignominy against his name, not Gourlay's. Gourlay's face twitches, and he breaks into shrieks of manacle laughter. 
the petty persecutions of a provincial tyranny have driven a man who is true patriot out of his mind as gourlay drops out of canada's story here it may be added that the english government later pronounced the whole trial an outrage and gourlay was invited back to canada if at this stage a man had come to canada as governor big enough and just enough to realize that colonies had some rights there might have been remedy for this imperial government eager to right the wrong was misled by the legislative councillors and all at sea as to the source of the trouble while men were being actually driven out of canada by the governing ring on the charge of disloyalty the colonel minister of england was sending secret dispatches to the governor-general instructing him plainly that if independence was what canada wanted then the mother country rather than risk a second war with the united states or press conclusions with canada themselves would wittingly cede independence it is as well to be empathetic and clear on this point it was not the tyranny of england that caused the troubles of eighteen thirty seven it was the dishonesty of the ruling rings at quebec and toronto and this dishonesty with was possible because of the constitutional act of seventeen ninety one unfortunately just when imperial statesmen of the modern school were needed governors of the old school were appointed to canada after sir john sherbrooke came the duke of richmond to quebec and his son-in-law sir peregrine maitland as lieutenant governor to ontario men of more courtly manners never graced the viceregal chairs of quebec and toronto richmond who was some fifty years of age had won notoriety in his early days by a duel with a prince of the blood royal honor on both sides being satisfied by richmond shooting away a curl from the royal brow but presto an irish barrister takes up the quarrel by challenging richmond to a second duel for having dared to fight a prince and here richmond satisfies claims of honor by a well-directed ball aimed to wound not kill long years after when the duke became viceroy of ireland the irishman appeared at one of richmond's state balls ha laughed the barrister the last time we met your grace gave me a ball best give you a brace of em now retorted the witty richmond and he sent his quodam foe invitation to two more balls richmond it was who gave the famous ball before the defeat of napoleon at waterloo the story of his daughter's love match with sir pegreen maitland is a piece with rest of the romance in richmond's life richmond and Maitland had been friends in the army but when the duke began to observe that his daughter lady sarah and the younger man were falling in love he thought to discourage the union with a poor man by omitting maitland's name from invitation lists when lady sarah came downstairs to a ball she surmised that maitland had not been invited and withdrawing from the assembled guests drove to her lover's apartments 
she married Maitland without her father's consent, but a reconciliation had been patched up. Father and son-in-law now came to Canada as governor and lieutenant governor. The military and social life of both unfitted them to appreciate the conditions of Canada. Socially both were the lions of the hour. A man and gentleman, Richmond, was simply adored and Quebec's love of all the pomp and monarchy was glutted to the full. No more distinguished governor ever played host in the old shadow St. Louis, but as rulers, as pacifiers, as guides of the ship of state, Richmond and Maitland were dismal failures. To them Canada's demand for responsible government seemed the rallying cry of an impending republic. We must overcome democracy or it will overcome us, pronounced Richmond. He failed to see that resistance to the demand for self-government would bring about the same results in Canada as resistance had brought about in the United States. And if he could not guess, for the thing was new in the world's history, that the grant of self-government would but bind the colony the closer to the motherland. It is sad to write of two such high-minded, well-intentioned rulers that the worst acts of misgovernment in Canada took place in their regime. End of section 44. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.